Tune in to episode 14 to learn about the cast of characters in international trade transaction. This is Two Babes Talk Supply Chain, where we interview the top supply chain professionals in the industry. You will learn about the best practices, changes in the industry, and hot topics in supply chain. We answer all your questions and put the sexy into your supply chain. We are your hosts, Sarah and Nick. To all of our fabulous listeners, thank you once again for tuning into Two Babes Talk Supply Chain. We have listened to your requests, so today we are talking to Alexander Malaket, a fellow CITP about supply chain finance, understanding realities and protecting your interests with letters of credit. Alexander R. Malaket. CITP is president of Canadian Consultancy Opus Advisory Services International, Inc., established in 2001, focusing on international business, trade and investment with a specialism in trade finance and supply chain finance. Mr. Maliket is an internationally recognized expert, contributing regularly to industry publications like Trade Finance Magazine, Trade and Forfeiting Review, Global Trade Review, Cash and Trade Magazine, and Trade and Export Finance. Alexander is the author of Financing Trade and International Supply Chains, Gower Ashgate Publishing, UK 2014. Welcome to the show, Alexander. We are excited to have you on and talking about such an important topic nonetheless. Let's get started with a brief overview of a letter of credit and what it is exactly. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you very much for the invitation to join uh, you today. It's, uh, it's a delight to be here, as you said, with a fellow CITP and, in fact, a fellow FIT board member. So, again, thank you for uh, thinking of me and having me join you on this call today. Um, so, look, in terms of uh, what a letter of credit is, and I should preface this a little bit by saying that in the business we talk about traditional trade finance and then we talk about supply chain finance, which is kind of an emerging area of activity. Um, if we're talking letters of credit, we're probably more in the traditional side of the business. And uh, if, if you think about all the complexities involved in doing business uh, in your own home country or your home uh, state or city, it's already complicated enough. And when you carry that across borders, potentially halfway around the world with a client or a supplier that you don't know well, that you've had to do maybe some due diligence on, that there, you know, there's some political risk issues in the country that, that uh, you're trading with, um, the complexities just get exponentially more significant. The good news is, for those interested in international trade and looking at trade as an attractive commercial option, is that there are some very, very effective, long-standing and very proven ways of mitigating a whole slew of those types of risks that we're talking about, uh, to the point that it makes uh, venturing into international markets not only possible and viable, but also quite attractive from from a risk mitigation perspective and from the the returns that you can generate. Um, A letter of credit effectively allows a buyer and a seller to select this, what is typically a banking instrument. In most cases, it's not not always just issued by banks, but it's typically a banking instrument as a way of assuring secure payments, as a way of enabling some financing, and as a way of enabling some very effective mitigation of risk, as I mentioned, country risk, uh, political risk, uh, any sort of performance risk uh, by your uh, trading counterparty or by one or more of the banks that are involved in the transaction. Uh, If you think, for example, of yourself as a Canadian exporter, let's say, uh, and shipping halfway around the world to a buyer that you've never done business with, uh, 
you have the choice of either relying on the payment guarantee or the payment promise of that buyer and hoping they don't go bankrupt or somehow there's not some uh, situation like civil unrest in their country that prevents payment uh, from reaching you once you've produced and shipped the goods, or you can bring in some intermediaries in the shape of banks uh, to issue a letter of credit uh, on behalf of the buyer overseas in favor of the exporter in Canada, in this case, as an example. Uh, and then the Canadian exporter has the option to rely on the payment promise of a bank, typically a very credible bank with established international finance capabilities and competencies, instead of relying on the payment promise of what could be a small business halfway around the world that could go bankrupt tomorrow. Um, what the letter of credit does is it creates a situation where the instrument sets out the terms and conditions under which a payment will be made or a future payment will be made to an exporter based on agreement between the buyer and seller in an underlying contract. And in the event that those conditions are met, fully met, the exporter can count on payment under that letter of credit regardless of what happens to uh, the importing buyer. In other words, even if the importer goes bankrupt or something happens that sort of interferes with their ability to make payment, the issuing bank that has sent out this instrument, this banking instrument, in favor of the exporter, uh, then has a legal obligation to make that payment regardless of what happens to their client, their importing client uh, in, in the overseas market. There are nuances to all of this, but in the most basic form, that's the flow of a letter of credit. Typically, there's also a bank in the domestic market of the exporter acting on behalf of the exporter. So the, the way the process works is the buyer and seller agree to transact on the basis of a letter of credit. The importer then goes into their financial institution, fills out an application or does it online these days uh, for an import letter of credit. Uh, that letter of credit then gets reviewed by the bank or the application gets reviewed by the bank. And if they're happy with the terms of the application, they then issue this letter of credit, which then becomes a financial undertaking or an obligation of the issuing bank. That instrument gets transmitted electronically, typically through a network called SWIFT, which we'll get into in a minute gets transmitted between the issuing bank and the bank that's typically located in the home market of the exporter, which we call the advising bank in the simplest of cases. And the reason that is, is they receive the letter of credit, they review it to make sure the terms are workable for their client, for the Canadian exporter in this example, uh, and then they, quote unquote, advise this letter of credit or say to the exporter, we have a letter of credit that we've just received in your favor, which now allows you to begin production and sort of planning of shipment and sort of collect the documentation that you will need to demonstrate that you've met the terms and conditions of this banking instrument so that you can then trigger a payment or a promise of payment at a future date. Um, and I think I'll just pause here for a moment in case I'm just in case there's questions or comments or any points that need clarification. Yeah, no, I think that is really great. I mean, you're going into, you know, you're going into a bit of an overview of some of the different roles of a letter of credit, um, and you've given us an example of a, a simple letter of credit flow. Um, would there be anything else that you would add to that? Is there another role that a, a letter of credit can play that maybe you haven't touched on j just yet? Sure, Sarah. So, so these instruments have been in existence literally for many hundreds of years, and they've been, so the good news is they've been effective enough to, to be still relevant and in use today. Um, the International Chamber of Commerce in Paris estimates that letters of credit and another traditional instrument called a documentary collection, which we can talk about in a future podcast, 
account for roughly 10% of global merchandise trade flows today. That might be somewhere in the range of 18 to 20 trillion, depending on what number you're looking at. Uh, so we're looking at 1.8 to $2 trillion of trade flows facilitated by letters of credit. So they're still fairly important and relevant, even wow. though they are getting a little bit long in the tooth in terms of how long they've been around. Um, part of the reason for that is that you, uh, they are interpreted on the basis of a set of standard rules that are accepted internationally called the Uniform Customs and Practice for Documentary Credits, currently in version 600. Uh, those rules are up- updated roughly every 10 years by the ICC, or the National Chamber of Commerce Banking Commission. Um, and those are the rules that set out the uh, obligations and uh, undertakings of the various parties. There are a series of articles that govern how letters of credit are to be used and interpreted. Uh, and so that's the first guidepost in terms of how these these, these instruments are used. Um, the way I describe this, so trade finance is, is generally not very well understood. It's a very specialized sort of esoteric area of finance. And even very senior treasury people and even senior bankers typically don't know this area very well. Uh, and so to try to distill it, I would suggest that there are basically four things involved in any kind of trade financing solution structure or transaction. It's about secure and timely payment across borders. It's about some kind of financing or lending to one or more of the parties. So you could finance the importer, you could finance the exporter, you could finance one or more of the banks that are involved uh, to facilitate the transaction as well. And there are a number of ways you can do that on the basis of a letter of credit and how it's structured. Uh, the third piece is risk mitigation. I think I've mentioned that once or twice already, that the letter of credit, uh, for example, allows you to shift commercial risk, in other words, a payment promise from an importer overseas, onto bank risk, which prior to the 2007-89 crisis, we would have said bank risk is much higher quality than most, most corporate risk. That's not always the case now, but I'd say the situation is normalizing a little bit. So still, you're probably better off as an exporter, particularly if you're an SME, you're probably better off relying on a payment promise by a solid internationally recognized financial institution than you are by let's say, most buyers that you're likely to do business with overseas. So that's the risk mitigation component. And then the final piece I'd suggest that's becoming more and more relevant, particularly in the last five to seven years or so, is this information flow. It's it's information about the status of the shipment. It's information about the status of the financial flow of the transaction. Uh, And that's becoming increasingly critical because there's a lot more sensitivity now about the speed of the transaction and what implications that has for cash flow, for working capital, and for the ability of small businesses in particular to manage their ability to continue to pursue business, uh, not only domestically, but international markets, based on healthy cash flow and and adequate levels of working capital, which allows them to to keep running their business as they uh, pursue transactions. So no matter how complex a deal is, and some of these things can be very, very complicated to structure, it's really about secure, secure and timely payment, um, uh, some form of financing, some form of risk mitigation, and an information flow. And so that, I think, in, really encapsulates what trade financing and increasingly supply chain financing is about. And certainly that's the core characteristic and the core uh, elements of a uh, traditional documentary letter of credit or letter of credit. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. I'm sure with technology these days, um, it is getting quicker and quicker, and, and it would affect cash flow. Now, I'm going to get back to the point on risk in just a moment. I wanted to ask you, so can a letter of credit protect against fraud, and what are the non-compliance implications? And then I'm going to get a little bit more into risk. Okay, that's great. L- let me deal with the non-compliance issues first, then we'll deal with the fraud issue. Uh, the, the letter of credit 
in the textbook scenario, it, it works best when an exporter is fully compliant with the terms and conditions of the credit. What, what a letter of credit says is, look, buyer and seller have agreed to transact on the basis of this banking instrument, and the way that the exporter will demonstrate compliance with the terms and conditions that will trigger payment is by submitting a set of documents to demonstrate that. So, for example, to get less theoretical and more concrete, if there is a requirement in the LC, which comes from the underlying contract, to ship no later than November 18, 2016, the exporter has to submit a document to show that they've actually done that. So that's typically a, a marine bill of lading or an airway bill that shows exactly the date on which the cargo was loaded on the ship or was actually sent across the ocean or you know, put in the air at the airport or whatever that is, to then say, okay, that's one of the terms and conditions of the credit shipment, latest shipment date, November 18, 2016. Here's a document that shows us this has been done. Um, so there are typically a series of these kinds of requirements. It might be something like a health certificate. It might be something like an inspection certificate from SGS, which is a European-based um, um, inspection service. Um, it might be a consular invoice. So there might be a whole series of things that the buyer and seller have agreed are required for the importer to be assured that they will receive the goods that they've contracted for and expect, and therefore that the exporter can demonstrate that they've done all the things they promised to do and can therefore rely on payment under the, uh, under the letter of credit. The implication of non-compliance, to come back to, to your question, in the worst-case scenario is that the payment is refused. So in, in theory, if there's a situation of late shipment, say the shipment was done on November 19th or 20th, the importer could say, you know what, sorry, I'm going to refuse the payment, uh, refuse the payment and therefore it's now the problem of the exporter to determine whether to sell the goods locally in the importing market at a deep discount or actually to incur the cost to bring them back to the originating market. So the implications are, are kind of drastic. I mean, the whole point of the LC is to provide protection for both parties, for the importer to make sure they, they're receiving what they expect, for the exporter to, to make sure they're receiving a payment or a uh, confirmation of a payment at a future date, which you can also set up, uh, based on the terms and conditions being met. The reality of letters of credit today, and this isn't widely known outside of the circle of practitioners, is that the, the rates of non-compliance or so-called discrepancy against letter of credit terms are pretty significant. Um, the first survey done years and years ago by KPMG suggested about 60% of the time exporters are, are submitting non-compliant documentation. Um, we're seeing some of those numbers get a little bit better depending on how you count them, but the first time a set of documents are presented by an exporter, in some markets, the, the non-compliance rates are still as high as 80%, and that's in the Nordic region, other Europe. Uh, but these days, a number of these discrepancies can still be corrected. Some of them can, some of them can't. And so uh, when an exporter is advised of non-compliance, they have an opportunity sometimes to go and correct some of these some of these discrepancies and bring the documentation in line with the terms and conditions of the LC. And in that case, you get of course, lower rates of non-compliance or discrepancy, and therefore the protection that's being paid for under the LC uh, remains then viable. So the bottom line is non-compliance basically takes away the protection that's been paid for uh, by using the letter of credit. Uh, now, in terms of the second question, or actually the first question you raised about fraud, um, I guess the, the takeaway is really no. Letters of credit are not built to prevent fraud. Um, there is, if you look at the UCP articles, which I mentioned earlier, there's a very explicit uh, direction that banks who examine documentation, so if we go back to the flow, um, 
we described how a letter of credit is issued and received by the exporter. What then happens is the exporter has the letter of credit in hand, goes away and prepares documentation to demonstrate compliance with all the terms and conditions and submits those documents to typically the advising bank, which can also have other roles. They may be able to buy the documents. They may be able to uh, undertake other roles, which we probably won't cover in this podcast. Uh, but let's say for, for the sake of simplicity, the documents go to the advising bank, who again is acting notionally uh, you know, they're an agent of the issuing bank, but they're acting notionally for their client in the exporting market, say Canada in this case. Um, the advising bank reviews the documentation and also makes a determination of whether the documents are compliant or non-compliant against LC terms and may go back to the exporter and say, hey, listen, there's a small typo in the packing list or in some document or there's a, sorry, to be more accurate, there's a typo in the description of goods in the commercial invoice, which could be construed as a discrepancy. Uh, please go ahead and correct that or you've missed a phytosanitary certificate, can you please go and get that and provide it as part of your request for payment? Um, the documents then, based on the finding of the advising bank, then get transmitted over to the issuing bank. Uh, so they get physically put in a courier pouch and sent across uh, to the issuing bank. The issuing bank done, then does their own verification of documents against the LC and makes its own determination about whether documents are compliant or non-compliant. And you can see there might be situations where the issuing bank and the advising bank actually disagree on whether documents are compliant or non-compliant, and that does happen. Uh, and then, you know, you either negotiate it and come to a resolution, or uh, the exporter is, is left to hope that the issuing bank will, will come to a determination of compliant submission, or ultimately they'll have to negotiate with the importer overseas to say, okay, look, there may be some minor discrepancies here that are commercially not very significant, even though they're technical discrepancies. Can we, on the basis of our trading relationship, agree that this is actually substantively a compliant submission, and could you please agree to the payment or agree to payment at the agreed future date? And so the documentation then, that's the flow of that process. Alexander, i got a quick question for you. Do you ever think that there will be eventually a new process and like letters of credit would be obsolete and they'd make it all totally legal, or do you think letters of credits would probably go on for another 10, 20 years? Sure. Uh, Nick, this is uh, a situation that we've been hearing about a lot for the last, I don't know, uh, probably 20 or 30 years, um, that the LC is obsolete and will disappear. It has not happened yet for some very good reasons, uh, and that is, as I mentioned, the practice of letters of credit is relatively well understood among bankers and legal professionals and the courts that get involved in arbitrations or disputes. There's a whole range of uh, precedent and consistent interpretation that really makes this a very effective instrument across 160-plus countries. Uh, and it's also something that people go back to almost as a reflex in times of crisis. Now, there are efforts underway and have been since the late 1990s, for example, to I'll use the buzzword, and I apologize for that, but it's dematerialize uh, documentation. And the idea is, can you take paper documentation, which is process-intensive and requires people to sort of look at the documentation, physically review it, could we digitize that? And could we translate all of this process or some version of this process into digital flows that even automate the decision about whether the sub submission is compliant or not compliant? And in fact, there's been some progress on that. Uh, we have, in the last couple of years, uh, been able to uh, successfully conclude an end-to-end -end digital transaction from a couple of different providers. Um, one of the solutions that's out in the market today is something called the bank payment obligation, which is effectively a digitized or electronic uh, variation of a trade finance framework, let's call it, 
um, that allows data to be extracted from the purchase order on one side of the equation and from the export documentation on the other side of the equation. Uh, kind of a matching process to take place between those two data sets and then an automatic decision uh, to be triggered as to whether the data sets match, therefore we've got a compliance submission by the exporter, or they don't match, and therefore we have to either resolve the situation or we're in a case of non-compliance. So we have definitely moved towards the digital uh, space in terms of trade financing, and we're seeing that much more also in the supply chain finance where, where the use of platforms uh, and technology-based propositions and solutions is much more common. Uh, but the letter of credit, even in, in its basic paper intensive form, I think will be around for, I think you mentioned 10, 20 years. I, I certainly foresee it uh, remaining relevant and important for at least another 10 years, if not 20. Uh, as I said, we've, we've been hearing about its demise for the last three or four decades, and it's still around. Yeah, yeah, it's ex- it's an exciting time. I mean, for a lot of different industries and a lot of a lot of different things in regards to the digital world. So it it'll be interesting to see what does happen. So I know that we t- I know that you touched on risk um, a little bit earlier in the conversation, but I just want to bring it back for a second and, and ask you: How does a letter of credit protect against risk, and what are the different types of risks you mentioned? I believe country risk. Um, so, so what are the other types and how does the LC protect? Sure, Sarah, thank you for that. And, and let me go back to your question about fraud for just a moment. And just, I really want to highlight this, and I probably didn't do it adequately in the first go-around, um, that the, the responsibilities of bankers here is to verify documentation and uh, validate the documents submitted against the terms and conditions of the LC. If a document is expertly forged, it's not the bank's job to go and validate the legitimacy of a document. So I want to be very clear to, peop- to people listening to this podcast that fraud prevention is a marginal element of what an LC can do because the banks do exercise a certain amount of expertise. They can spot certain forgeries and they can spot certain hints, for example, in the routing of a, of a shipment that will hint, suggest to them, hey, wait a minute, something isn't right here. Uh, and so there is some element of that going on, but it's not the core of the process. You can, as an example, and this has happened, you can check uh, reports from something called the International Maritime Bureau at the International Chamber of Commerce that reports on piracy and trade-based fraud. Um, You can have a situation where a container with the goods that have been bought and paid for uh, are transshipped at an interim port somewhere along the route. Uh, The seal of the container is broken. The container is emptied. But in the meantime, all the documentation is legitimate and compliant because everything was done correctly, and all the, all the supporting documentation was there because the goods were actually there. They were produced, they were loaded, they were shipped. And so from a finance perspective or a trade finance perspective, you have a fully compliant scenario, even though en route that uh, container was cracked open because somebody was, was you know in, co- in, in collaboration with, with the fraudsters and the thieves and allowed that to happen, container emptied goods disappeared, but the payment will still be triggered in the banking world because it was a compliance submission. So I just want to be clear that, that there are limitations on fraud, fraud protection under the LC. Now, to your question about risk mitigation, there are a number of things that can be done on the basis of a letter of credit. And I'll, I'll probably touch on something called a confirmation of a letter of credit as a, maybe a, a clear illustration of this. Um, let's imagine for a minute an exporter in Germany who is doing business with a relatively high-risk market, let's say, in uh, East Africa or in South Asia. And when I say high-risk, I mean it could be a developing or emerging market. It could be one where there's civil unrest, there's outright military action or war, 
uh, trade takes place in the most complex environments in the world. Uh, and so the instruments that mitigate risk have evolved in such a way that they can help mitigate some of the most difficult risks that one can imagine. So that German exporter has the option to use a basic letter of credit and rely on the payment promise of the issuing bank, as I mentioned, in South Asia or somewhere in Africa. Or they could say, actually, I'd rather have my letter of credit confirmed by a German bank. And a confirmation is a separate, standalone legal undertaking to make payment under the letter of credit or to um, to agree to a, a payment, payment promise at a future date under the letter of credit, completely independent of what the issuing bank has done. Uh, of course, the, the confirming bank will charge a fee for that, and they'll have to make sure that they have risk appetite and they have credit lines in place to be able to do that, because effectively they are accepting uh, the risk of the issuing bank. And so they have to make sure that they're comfortable with all of that before they will confirm a letter of credit, because then, it's, then it's, if they have to make a payment under the confirmation, they then have to go to the issuing bank and try to recover the funds. So they have to be comfortable with that dynamic before they'll go ahead and confirm. What that does is it allows the German exporter to claim payment in Germany, typically from a German bank, and bypass any and all of the risks that are associated with doing business internationally. So they get away from uh, the country risk in the country of the importer. They get away from issuing bank risk. They get away from the commercial risk of the uh, buyer overseas, or at least the exporter does. So. By having this confirmation added to the letter of credit, you've effectively eliminated, I'm going to say eliminated, let's call it mitigated as being the correct term, uh, but it's effectively eliminated all of those risks um, because you've agreed that the, um, the letter of credit will be confirmed and you've chosen a confirming bank based in the home country typically of the exporter. What is SWIFT and how does it relate to letters of credit? Ah. Uh, SWIFT is an acronym for something called the Society for World Interbank Financial Telecommunications. Uh, and it's a Belgium-based organization. It's basically a cooperative that's owned by a group of banks. Uh, and it operates a network that facilitates inter- interbank payments. For example, if you do a bank transfer from one uh, financial institution to another and you do this electronic transfer uh, to move the funds, it's going to go through the SWIFT network. And SWIFT runs this highly secure network of, that, that enables this kind of payment flow or financial flow, but it also enables the transmission of so-called structured messages. Uh, letters of credit in their SWIFT format are something called MT700 or Message Type 700 series messages. Uh, and those are, you think about a telegram. A telegram is unstructured text. It's typically two or three sentences. For those who even remember what a telegram is, <laughs> uh, it's unstructured text that's transmitted electronically. Uh, from one point to another. A SWIFT message is actually highly structured. There are field tags that identify what data or what data point goes into each field of that message so that the sender and the recipient interpret that message exactly the same way or as as close to exactly the same way as they possibly can. Uh, So if you look at a letter of credit today, it's typically issued via SWIFT as opposed to what used to be the case being typed up on paper and sent through the mail uh, decades ago. Uh, And and those structured messages allow the transmission of these uh, letters of credit, and then any payment or financing transactions that take place relating to that letter of credit also flow through the SWIFT system. So it's it's basically a secure structured messaging infrastructure that that covers the globe. Um, Most of the banks in the world are are on the SWIFT uh, network. Um, I think now Iran, I think for a time, was was either off of it or, or was having 
you know, was being restricted from accessing it because of sanctions issues. Uh, there was some discussion about potentially putting Russia on, on a sanctions list and limiting their access to SWIFT. Uh, but there are those that argue that that's a very drastic uh, measure because it effectively cuts off these, these regions and these countries from the international financial infrastructure and system and, and therefore impacts their ability to, to engage in trade and access basic, uh, basic uh, goods and products for their populations. Uh, you know, for example, Canadian wheat, uh, which was for a time uh, a significant export to Iran many, many years ago. So the SWIFT network is really what facilitates a lot of these communications and a lot of the financial flows that, uh, that enable trade activity. Your knowledge on this subject, and I can hear the passion just coming through the phone, is amazing. And I can just picture our listeners, you know, burning through pens, just taking down notes through this uh, through this conversation. So before we take this, uh, before we take the conversation into maybe a, a little bit of a different approach, where we talk where we talk about you know the future of supply chain finance, things like that. Why don't you let us know what are your top five tips when working? With letter when working with letters of credit. Uh, okay, uh, I, I would I would say first of all thank you for that comment. I'm glad sort of the energy comes comes across on the line. It's it's a business I've been in for for many years, and and you know we're doing I think some very useful things. I mean this has this isn't uh, financial engineering. This isn't theoretical. This impacts people's lives. This this helps raise the standard of living in developing and emerging markets. It helps um, you know, consumer economies in the Americas and Europe get access to, to products and services they might not otherwise have access to. I mean, when we think about the way trade takes place today and the way its, it's components are pulled together and the way supply chains work, uh, this is something that really has very, very significant impact. And not to make a political statement, given what's been going on uh, globally today with, with protectionist sentiments and anti-trade uh, rhetoric and all this stuff, staying away purely from the political side of it, all I'll say is, despite its many acknowledged imperfections, all in all, we think trade has um, been the source of net benefit globally, even, as I said, even with its acknowledged imperfections, which we continue to work on. So, so I'm glad that sort of the energy behind the topic is coming across. Um, in terms of tips around dealing with letters of credit, I would say there are a couple of things to keep in mind. Uh, you know, it really depends, to on the level of experience in international trade of the companies that are listening to us on this podcast. Um, some will be very comfortable with some of the concepts we've talked about. Some, For some, it'll be relatively new, and, and as I mentioned earlier, quite esoteric. And for, for that latter group, as I mentioned, you know, even senior finance people and senior treasurers don't get this immediately or quickly. So don't worry about that. There's plenty of good advice and good resources out there to help navigate this topic. And I think that probably would be my, my first piece of advice, would be to, to make sure that as a small business owner or as a business executive involved in this kind of activity, uh, whether you're on in sales and treasury and logistics, that you just be sure that you have at least a basic understanding of, of the mechanics here, um, including some of the more blatant risks, including what we talked about earlier, which is the risk of non-compliance for an exporter. Just realize that that's a very significant risk to the transaction, and you need to be very careful about those kinds of things. So I'd say um, get some good advice from trade financiers, from consultants, from the Canadian Trade Commissioner Service, from Export Development Canada, if we're talking in the Canadian context, from equivalent organizations in other parts of the world, uh, the U.S. Commercial Service, uh, you know, any number of other institutions like that that have expertise in the domain, we'll, we'll be happy to provide some very good advice. There are some excellent resources online. Um, major financial institutions have 
uh, a range of guides and how-tos around all of this. So, so some good advice, some good resources, and then it's about thinking about how the, the thing gets structured. And I would suggest that from that perspective, um, the, the structuring of a letter of credit is extremely important and uh, as straightforward as it can be made to support trade flows and to support trading relationships, that probably is, is a key in terms of not inserting excessive complexity into the process that then can generate uh, discrepancies and situations of non-compliance. Um, I think then uh, I would say that it's important to keep in mind that relationships are fundamental to the, the successful conduct of trade, and that's no exception in terms of the use of letters of credit. Um, I think look to the trading relationship and look to negotiate resolution to any disputes or areas of disagreement uh, and, and rely on that relationship. Uh, and then I would say that's another element to, to keep in mind in terms of the functioning of letters of credit. Those are really, really great tips. So I know we spoke about a little bit of the future of the letter of credit, but what I'd like to get is um, your opinion on where do you see supply chain finance in the next five to 10 years, and what are some of the challenges we're going to be running into? Um, so, so okay, Sarah, I mean, there are a couple of things at play here. So I'm going to chat a little bit about the traditional trade space for just a minute. Um, there's, there's some work being done through the International Chamber of Commerce and the Asian Development Bank uh, based in Manila. In fact, their trade finance uh, program is run by a fellow Canadian, interestingly enough. Um, and the ADB has done some analysis over the last couple of years that estimates that there is a global a level of unmet demand for trade finance in the range of $1.6 trillion per year. That's the latest figure. Uh, and so what we're learning is that companies of all sizes would uh, be happy to have access to more trade finance than is available today, typically through the banking uh, sector or the banking environment. Um, so that's one challenge that we're looking at is in, in terms of how do we make sure that there are adequate levels of trade finance in the world to ensure that we're driving as much trade as we possibly can to then contribute to economic inclusion, economic development, growth, all of those kinds of things that flow from this type of activity. Um, to bring this to life a little bit, at the peak of the crisis in 2009, one of the things that we learned when the banks became nervous about their respective exposure to toxic U.S. mortgages, interbank lending, meaning bank-to-bank -bank lending and the ability to move money from one financial institution to another, absolutely dried up. And what that did was to cause uh, pre-export or pre-shipment finance to completely evaporate uh, because the banks weren't lending to each other and weren't making those resources available to each other largely driven on a bank-to-bank -bank basis these days. Uh, and what that did was it caused a 40% drop in export flows from Asia to the Americas and Europe. So that's a pretty precipitous, and, and it had some very, very significant impacts, uh, which we still continue to feel today. And so for that reason, when I talk about this trade finance gap of $1.6 it's one of the areas that we're keeping very close eye on in terms of how can we address that gap, uh, what can we do to bring in some additional capital, uh, probably from non-banks, uh, to, to try to make sure that companies of all sizes have adequate levels of trade financing available so they can pursue as much international commerce as they have appetite to do. Um, in terms of the evolution of the business, I think I would suggest that the traditional trade space, including uh, letters of credit and some of these traditional instruments, are, are plateauing. If you look at um, some figures from, again, the ICC, which publishes an annual survey, we just published the latest version back in September, uh, and it's accessible on the ICC website, uh, iccwbo.org. 
Uh, and you can see some very, very interesting data points and analysis on international trade and trade financing in that report. Um, it's very clear that traditional trade finance is, is trending flat to downwards and has been for a number of years. Uh, where the growth is is in where what we call open account trade activity. And open account typically in the classic textbook definition is, is basically where the buyer and seller say, okay, we're going to agree to, to deal in this particular type of goods or this shipment, and at some point when the goods have been produced and shipped, uh, a payment will be triggered from the buyer to the exporter. And it, it could be on delivery, it could be, let's say, when the goods are loaded on the ship. So the, the point at which payment is triggered is agreed between the two parties. Typically in open account transactions, there has not been any consideration given to risk mitigation. So it's been a, a Again, textbook, it's been uh, typically recommended that you only use open account trade when you've got established and trusted trading relationships and you're dealing with relatively secure markets. The reality today is that more and more of the trade activity globally, potentially as much as you know, 70-80% of it, takes place on open account terms, even when there are high-risk markets involved and even when there are um, un unfamiliar or honest uh, non-established or non, non or brand new trading relationships, I should have said. Um, and so where we're seeing evolution is that this open account space is being addressed more and more by financial institutions. They were very focused historically on traditional trade business. Um, companies of all sizes at some point started to decide, and this was almost kind of a global trend, to say, okay, we really don't want to deal with the complexities and the cost and the paper flow of traditional letters of credit. We think there's a, a quicker more cost-effective way to do this, much less complicated way to do this, and it's going to be this open account stuff. Uh, and in that context, the banks had a very limited role, which was basically to send the payment across the border and, and do not much else. Uh, but now they've recognized this global shift to open account trade, and they and we have started to develop solutions and propositions um, aimed at open account trade, which we broadly refer to as supply chain finance. And so that's where I think we'll see the largest, not only growth and concentration of activity, but I think that's where we'll see the largest uh, focus on innovation and uh, new developments in terms of propositions and new types of solutions and new types of financing and risk mitigation solutions. Um, I think you, you have seen um, the document that we produced over a two-year period to try to define eight techniques of supply chain finance and this bank payment obligation that I described earlier as a global standard so that we would create a common understanding of what supply chain, certain set, certain techniques of supply chain finance are about, and then the term, the umbrella term supply chain finance, looked at as a program of uh, solutions and techniques, what that should be defined to be and how that should be understood. So there's been quite a bit of work done to try to um, define those things, and now we're in the phase of trying to uh, promote those and advocate for those uh, those definitions to be used on a global basis as, as a basis for standard and common understanding. And beyond that, you know, I can envision even uh, the development of a certain set of rules around this stuff, uh, and then more and more techniques evolving in, in supporting trade that not only involves one buyer and one seller, but involves complex global supply chains with potentially thousands. Uh, of suppliers as part of the trading community. That's, you know, that's going to be so much fun to watch and uh, just see the evolution in the finance, especially supply chain finance industry and, and where it's going and, and what's happening with it. So before we wrap up, do you want to just give us a quick overview of what's next for, for yourself and Opus? Thank you, Sarah, and thank you again for the invitation to join. I really enjoyed the opportunity to uh, chat with all of you and, and, and your listeners on the podcast. 
Well, look, we, we've been involved in this uh, in an advisory capacity for the last 16 years or so, and you know that 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 will continue. Um, we we will continue to uh, advise banks, uh, corporate clients, international institutions. Uh, we do a fair amount of advocacy work through the ICC, through the B20 G20 process every year. Uh, through something called the World Trade Symposium. That's a partnership between uh, MISIS and the Financial Times in the UK. So we will continue to to do a lot of advocacy work around international trade and trade financing. Uh, we do a lot of work through the International Chamber of Commerce uh, Training and Certification Academy in Singapore, so we'll continue to be engaged there. Um, and I can tell you that I've, I've recently taken a look at my sort of forward planning, and I'm at this moment uh, absolutely on target to retire roughly on my 94th birthday and when things are a bit slower, potentially at 96. So I'll, I'll be busy for a few more years in, in this area. Well, with all of this passion, that's it's definitely, I don't think you're, it doesn't sound like you're ever going to stop. It's all the knowledge. He's like a walking encyclopedia. These numbers are just flying from the air. It's awesome. It's, it's a function of just having been in, in, in the space for so long. Uh, and, and so you, you, in, you almost inevitably, inevitably pick up a few things. But I think the the thing that we can do that's of service to the broader trading community is try to simplify what trade finance is and try to communicate uh, as clearly as we can what it is. Historically, I'll, I'll say, you know, we'll point a bit of a guilty finger at our industry. We, we've, we've described it in ways that are complex and complicated, and there's this kind of this veil of mystery around what it is that we do, but I don't think that's long-term doing us any favors. And so I think the clarity of communication and sort of trying to distill what the proposition is and how we do what we do uh, I think is is probably the right way to go, and and that's what we're spending a decent amount of time uh, trying to communicate to the market. So again, thank you all very very much for the opportunity to do that with, with with all of you and on on this podcast with your listeners. Well, there you have it, listeners. When dealing with letters of credit, be diligent and detail-oriented. Alexander has put together a free giveaway for our audience with all of this info plus a whole lot more. So visit our website, twobabestalksupplychain.com, to download. Thank you, Alexander. We loved having you on the show today. Thank you, Sarah. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Are you struggling to make the most out of your supply chain and keep the orders moving efficiently? IceCorp is your supply chain specialist, and they specialize in e-commerce, retail, and dropship distribution. They will provide you with tailor-made solutions that will drive your business and sales forward. To get your free assessment, visit them at icecorplogistics.com and check out their learning center as they have some great free resources waiting for you. Join us next time when we get into a kick-ass discussion about supply chain social media with Ben Colt from Orca Social in the UK. It will be close to his witching hour, so who knows where this conversation is going to go. Thanks again for your support. Remember to follow us on Insta, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and subscribe to our iTunes and Stitcher. Got a suggestion for a show or want to be a sponsor? Email us at listener at twobabestalksupplychain.com. And just remember, people, ship happens.